Y'all look friendly. <laughs> but I'm sweating anyway. <laughs> All right. Now, this is a great turnout for a Monday. <laughs> I think the word got out there that uh, I'm not Pastor Jeff. And anyway, uh, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, I'm delighted to be, have the opportunity to share with you some things that God is doing in my life and that has been teaching me. And uh, I trust that when this is over, there will be some clarity, and you will understand your foundations uh, maybe a little bit better. And uh, oh, here comes... The water man. Thank you. You see, it's really orange juice. Is anybody else here uh, thirsty? Enjoy. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to ask if you would just bow with me and pray. And we're going to invite uh, God by His Spirit to take control of this time. Father God, uh, we are overwhelmed with the high privilege that we have of coming directly into Your throne room and having audience with You. That we are greeted warmly with a smile. We're even invited to come up and sit on your lap and enjoy you and let you hear what we're feeling and thinking. And you speak to us your calm and peace and hope. And uh, Father, we're here this day because we love you and we love you because you first loved us. And we invite you, Spirit of God, to, to be our teacher this morning. We give this time to you and uh, we open our hearts. We receive your, your wonderful word. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, is there anyone uh, here that has experienced an obsession? Is an obsession a bad thing? <laughs> well, COD, uh, compulsive obsessive disorder, no. But, uh, you know, I think most of us obsess about some things like maybe how the Lakers are doing or what's going on with football or uh, what about the economy and we wring hands and, and we, we obsess about things. I want to talk to you this morning about a, a magnificent obsession. And uh, I'm going to read some scriptures that will be familiar to you. I hope that we will be able to put them in positions where they will come alive in your spirit and they will be transformation, transformational. But if you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Oh, by the way, do you have your Bibles here? Okay. If you don't have your Bibles, I just want to congratulate you on having it memorized. <laughs> But we're going we're to be looking at a lot of uh, places in the Scripture this morning. 
And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I want to talk to you about Paul's, the Apostle Paul's magnificent obsession. Uh, just a little bit of background uh, about Paul. Uh, Paul wrote in uh, the book of Philippians and in other, in other places uh, some things about uh, himself and why uh, he was an instrument of God to deliver uh, some important things. And he says here in verses 4 through 6, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Here's his resume. And he's saying, these, these are the things that I, I have been able to boast about. I was committed to my, uh, my cause. So much so that I became an enemy of what I felt were the enemies of what I believed to be true. Now, Paul comes from a deeply embedded tradition of 4,000 years of looking at life through a certain perspective. 4,000 years got it from his parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, on and on and on. Perhaps clear back to Abraham. He lived in a system that functioned in a certain way. And uh, he, was a, he was thoroughly uh, committed to the precept that acceptance with God is performing the works of the law perfectly. That was, his, that was his perspective. It is a perspective that is shared widely. It is the heart and soul, and I don't mean to be unkind, but it, it is the heart and soul of Judaism. It is the heart and soul of Islam. That the way to God is through my performance to keep the rules as, as God has made them clear to me. Now, for 4,000 years, they worked at this. Uh, they would come into God's blessing. They would forget what was going on. Moses took too much time getting down from the mountain. And they, were, they formed a golden calf and they were worshiping the idols that probably were a part of their 400-year tradition in Egypt. So they just went back to, to what they knew. And we see this being repeated over and over through the judges, through the prophets, uh, through the time of the Davidic kingdom, and on into uh, the time until Revelation ceased at the end of Malachi. This had been their pattern. And even uh, as, as we come to the day of John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, the, the commitment to the performance of the law uh, was absolute. And uh, all of the rituals, all the leadership uh, was there uh, to see that this was enforced or carried out by the people. 
let me talk a little bit about Paul, who was a part of that. I mean, he was not, he was not a casual believer. This man was a passionate believer in what he believed. And he committed himself, body, soul, and spirit to that, to the degree that we find him taking a trip up to Damascus to persecute this heretical group who now are going to be called Christ ones or little Christ. And they stood in opposition to what he believed. And he believed that if this was allowed to grow and other, uh, others of the Jewish tradition were to begin to buy into this, as they were, that it would tear down and destroy what he believed to be true. So he's headed up to Damascus. And you know uh, pretty much what happened, don't you? He got knocked off his high horse. And uh, he comes to the place where he is on the ground, he has seen Christ, he has seen this light, he has heard the voice, the others around him have not, have not seen or experienced any of this. And a voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. I mean, Saul was, was, had to be dumbstruck. And you know, as the story goes on, uh, he's taken into the village and there uh, he meets with someone that God has assigned to talk to him and tell him what's going on here. And uh, there comes what can only be described uh, as a conversion. Now, there are a couple of passages of Scripture that uh, I, I want to take you to if you've got an inclination to go with me. In, uh, in Galatians chapter 1, <clears throat> as, we, as we follow Paul's ministry, you know that he authored most of the New Testament. And in all the letters he wrote to individuals and to churches, uh, he is speaking with authority. And uh, there came a group of people that opposed him. People that liked the idea of Jesus. But they also were pretty tied to the law. And so they came in behind Paul in those churches and began to tell them, you know, Paul isn't telling it to you straight. And by the way, he's not even a real apostle. You know, he didn't, he didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't with Jesus in, in Jesus' ministry. Uh, so ergo, he could not possibly be an apostle. So we have Paul now uh, needing to defend his apostleship. And here's how he did it. In uh, Galatians 1, verses 11 and following... He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
I was advance, advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own, a, own age and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, I was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then uh, let's go over to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12. It's about one page over. And beginning with uh, verse 1. Now Paul said he received this not by going to Peter, uh, not going to any of the other apostles and having them teach him. He had this experience. He says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. I don't know where that is. I haven't been there yet. Maybe I have if somebody could explain to me what it is. Caught up into the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. <coughs> and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows he was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. What he's saying is that literally, I was with Jesus. I was taught by Jesus. I was met by Jesus on the way to Damascus. And he taught me and he opened up mysteries that have not been understood and have been puzzled over from the beginning of time until that, to that moment. Now, the setting of all of this is Judaism and the, and the legalistic uh, assumptions about how man and God are going to relate. And uh, we have uh, a, a burgeoning, a growing uh, Christian community, and uh, most of them were coming out of Judaism. Now, there were, there were others, as we read in Acts 2, that on the day of Pentecost from other surrounding areas, but they too were probably Jews. And uh, they were vulnerable. They were going to be vulnerable when they went back home from Pentecost, and they went back to their synagogue, to their families, to their friends, and they had had an experience with God. They had met God in a way that was not prescribed by the law. And they could easily be rocked and moved and become Jesus and the law. Jesus and the law. Now, I won't be able to get into all of it, but it's, it's really clear that we can't do that. Paul says, and if you want to explore it further, read the book of Galatians. Paul makes it really clear that... If you set yourself out, say, submitting to the pressure of your community to be circumcised, now that's a Gentile that's been converted and he really needs to be Judaized, circumcision or the keeping of the dietary laws or the keeping of days and festivals as a part of your activity, that uh, they would become half-breeds. Do you understand what I'm saying? They would, be, they would not be either. Paul says if you, if you set yourself to keep the law at one point, you're obligated to keep the whole law. 
And if you offend at one point, you're out of the game. Now, that's not King James English, but that's what he said. Um, when Paul went about his ministry, which was basically to take the good news to the Gentiles, uh, because of his encounter with God, he was able to take really good news. You understand what I'm saying? I'll, I'll, I'll take this a little stronger in a bit. But the good news, what is it? What is the gospel? Christ died, buried, risen again. Witnessed by many people in 1 Corinthians 15. So the good news is that Jesus died for our sins. And what many Christians experience is believing that accepting that, and truly becoming children of God. Okay, now what? We find ourselves... Did you know that we are genetically predisposed to legalism? That is our default setting. How many of you struggle with shame and guilt? Bad people. If you were to, to kind of take your own pulse on a daily basis, uh, you would find that you have a problem. I heard one other preacher say this, so I'll say it. No offense. You'll be, you'll be troubled by your falling shorts. <laughs> you ever feel like you're not measuring up? God, I want more. I need more. Uh, I hold it in most of the time and I don't express it, but I am frustrated with my wife. I'm kidding, not Darlene. <laughs> or I'm frustrated with my work. and Or God, it's, it's my health. And I just don't feel like I'm a very positive, victorious Christian. And uh, what's the answer? Most of us go to the answer of try harder. And I, I hate to say this, but most of what we hear in Western Christian churches is law. Six steps to this, four steps to that. Try harder. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Are those good things to do? Yes. Absolutely. But I'll tell you what. The flesh doesn't want to do those things. And if we do it, it becomes a discipline that's hard and uh, leaves us, from my own experience, it's exhausting. You know, how many of you want to live for God? Okay, that's good. But it's exhausting. <laughs> Let me tell you the secret. The secret is to live from God, not for Him. If you are living from God, you're living from a life source that is up to everything. Thank you. I was, I was going to say earlier, uh, preaching is not one-way street. Uh, it is a two-way activity. And uh, if you want a good sermon this morning, you can pull it out of me. <laughs> I'll, remember, I'll remember things I wasn't going to remember, and it'll be just right. 
So let's preach this sermon together, okay? All right. So Paul finds himself defending his apostleship. And we've already talked about that, that he had special revelation from God. And he had this experience in, uh, in Arabia. He was there for three years. I don't know where it fits in the, in the schedule of things. But after he was in Arabia and God had been teaching him, he came back and presented himself to Peter so that they might discourse. Now, I'd, I'd like to have been there for that conversation. Because I think uh, this deeply embedded human instinct for performance as my way of feeling okay was certainly something that Peter was struggling with. And Paul was the one that got the revelation that that's not how it works. Not only did Jesus die for my sins, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, and you might say, Amen. Okay. It's not just that he died for my sins, and so all of this trash from the past is taken care of. Is that true? Absolutely, it's true. But what about from this point until Jesus comes back? What's going on there? All right, here's what, uh, here's what Paul is telling us. And this is found in the book of Romans. But he's telling us that when Jesus died, I died with him. Now, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that when Jesus went to the cross, my Adamic nature, which has always been the source of my problem, went to the cross with him, was buried. How many of you have been baptized? That's good. Do you know what you were saying when you were baptized? You're saying, I agree with God that the death sentence on me, this old Adamic nation person, uh, nature person, is exactly right, and I'm agreeing with it, and I'm submitting to a burial. Now, I, it's no longer I that live. It's Christ that lives within me. I'll tell you, this is what I think. Uh, we need to develop a habit. And the habit is this, that when we sin, it's not time to weep and wail and ask God to forgive you for sinning. In other words, when I lost my temper with my children, Oh, God, forgive me. I, I lost my temper with my, with my children. He says, that's not your problem. Your problem is that you believed a lie and you acted according to that lie. How many of you know that Satan is active in the world? How many of you remember what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve? The, the appeal was, the lie was to these people who were in intimacy with God in the sense that God is yet going to restore us to that intimacy. They were walking and talking in fellowship, and Satan appealed to their independence. You, you don't have to put up with this. You, he said, don't eat that tree. He, he's holding out on you. He's keeping you under his thumb. You can be as God. 
That's pretty good looking fruit, isn't it? It's the same temptation. Sin has one root, and it is the, it is the pressure to move away from God's authority and control in my life. And when I sin, it's because I believe that. That's a very enticing lie, by the way. Uh, when the enemy comes to me, he does not call me a slime ball. No, his, his task primarily is to inflate me. You've got a lot of potential. You know, you can do this and you can do that and you have this degree and that degree and, you know, you really are someone and you need to express yourself. You don't have to put up with that. You have your rights. They can't do that to you. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Out of my face. I've lost my temper. Was it because the the gospel, that is, that I died with Christ, did that not become true? Did that was that abrogated? No. He still appeals to that side of my nature and tries to resurrect the old self. And if he can succeed at that, we will find ourselves re- responding in one of two ways. Try harder or repent of believing the lie. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. Was written to the was spoken to the Philippian jailer. Believe, 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 believe. Uh, to everyone that believeth. I want to just share with you that what we believe determines our destiny. I'll give you an illustration from politics. Can you deal with this? I'm not promoting a party. I'm promoting Jesus Christ. But sometimes we wonder, how could they do that? How could they institute a program that uh, has insanity written all over it. Well, I tell you why. It's because of what they believe. I would love to know from everybody I vote for what they truly believe. If they believe uh, the picture that the Scripture gives us of a spiritualistic world environment, which means there is an incorporeal, a non-physical part of the environment. There are angels, there's demons, uh, there's categories, principalities and powers. We don't know just how all that organization works its way down. But if you believe that, it will predicate, tend to predicate the decisions you make. If you don't believe there is a God, Uh, Or if there is a God, he's a deist God who's just up there, but he's not involved. Uh, If that's that's what you believe, then everything is up to you. And God doesn't punish. He doesn't reward. He is not involved. It's up to you. The deist God is no God at all. Okay? So what we do 
uh, is act out our beliefs in how we conduct our life. Uh, if we believe in God of the Bible, uh, there will be a reverential fear that restrains us from taking the course of destructive attitudes, habits, and patterns. If we believe that God uh, is, is real and that he is absolutely holy, uh, we will find ourselves much less likely to slide into a lot of careless, destructive patterns. Because God, that kind of God cannot look on sin. If we don't believe the right things about the nature of man, if I believe, for instance, that the human uh, is essentially good uh, and really only in need of education and more stuff, they'll begin to be nice to each other. That'll, that'll affect how you do foreign, foreign policy. That'll affect how you institute social programs. If we believe that man is, a, is fallen, is under a curse, carries the genetic disposition that came to Adam with his rebellion against authority, that we carry that, but we also are created in God's image with the potential for enormous creativity. Now, if you believe that about man, number one, you will look for ways to release that creativity. That is honoring the, the image of God in man. If you believe that, uh, you will put checks and balances around every institution because man has fallen. Who do you trust? Who can you trust? Apart from the life of Christ in a person, you can trust no one. You can depend on people to always act in their own interest, even if it's at, at your detriment, if the life of Christ is not working in them. They will be nice and kind to you, but if the moment comes when it's you or me, it'll always be me. I, I've shared this with a few people. Jeff and I have talked about it quite a bit. But uh, I believe that every question is a theological question. Everything that comes up that needs to be decided finds its resolution in sound theology. The nature of God, who he is, and the nature of man, who they are. Uh, I will make structures as our founding fathers did. St structures that require accountability checks and balances. Now, I don't know that anybody in Washington is ready to receive this message. But I tell you, we can be wise and discerning if we understand. We are not easily sucked in and then go blubbering back. We have a grid through which we can interpret the, the morning newspaper. 
We have a grid that helps us assess what the message is of that television program. We're not just, you know, soaking it up and letting it change us. I, uh, I remember with my daughter, uh, we went to a movie together one time. Now, I can't watch a movie without taking it apart and say, this, what's its message? Did you know that everything, every song, every movie, every TV show, everything has a message. It is, di- it is dispensing a view of reality. And we need to know if that reality is true truth or if it's just how this person and their view of themselves and God, uh, they're expressing what they believe. Where do we go from here? I take uh, a look at Paul and his uh, situation as a Jew with the pressure of 4,000 years of tradition, family watching, friends watching. How easy or hard would it be for Paul to convert? How many of you know that's exactly what goes on in the heart of all of us when we come to that moment of embracing Jesus Christ? We've got all this pressure. People are watching our workplace, uh, all of these things, and we find ourselves straddling, trying to live in both worlds and keep everybody happy. Not understanding that if we step into Christ, being in Christ, filled with the life of Christ, will produce a loveliness that people will be drawn to as if by a magnet. And to stand in both worlds, we nobody's impressed with it. Least of all you, and you're living with your guilt issues. But it was a hard thing for the Apostle Paul to make this, and I think this is why God gave him these supernatural experiences of revelation of truth, He gave it to him because he needed to thoroughly convince him that grace is the only way. The law never works. How many of you know what grace is? Anybody got a definition? Well, God's riches at Christ's expense. I've heard that from the time I was young. And it's not bad. But I don't think it's, it's big enough. And I've shared this before, and and you can turn it off for just a second if you want to. Grace is God's empowering presence, enabling me to be who he created me to be and to do all that he calls me to do. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. You know, this law-grace thing, uh, 4,000 years of living with the law, but there were hints of what was coming. Uh, If you want to look it up sometime and read it, Genesis 15 will give you an account of Abraham's encounter with God when God makes a covenant with him 
You know, when your seed will be as the sand of the seas and the nations of the earth will be blessed by you. And then when they make covenant, it's called a blood covenant. When they make covenant, there are certain things that were done, such as between David and Jonathan. Uh, there is you, there, there would be a sacrifice. The animal is, in this situation in Genesis 15, the animal would be, would be split into two and the covenanting parties would walk through the, the pieces in a figure eight pattern. And in their, in doing this, they are saying, may it be so to me and worse if I break this covenant. Other things were done. They would exchange a ring. I made a covenant with Darlene 52 years ago. And by God's grace, uh, she has survived. <laughs> Such a sage. But they would, they would, they would perhaps exchange garments. I'll take your coat, you take mine. Uh, they would exchange swords. Your enemies are my enemies. If you're attacked, they're attacking me. In other words, this was a covenant that bound them together uh, for better or for worse. And when they made that covenant, it was deadly serious. Now, here's what happened with Abraham in Genesis 15. Uh, God knocked him out. And he's in a dream state. And he sees the, the sacrifice, sacrificial animal. And he sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch going through the pieces. This is prefiguring the grace dimension. Because our deal is that we are incapable of keeping covenant because of the Adam nature. So God is saying, I will keep my side of the covenant and I will keep your side of the covenant. I will put my spirit in you. And through you, I will fulfill the obligations of our covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? That uh, it wears you out to live for God. You never measure up. You can't fulfill it all. And if you are fulfilling what somebody else or you thought it wouldn't, God raises the bar. Do you know he does that? You say, you shall not look on a woman to lust after her. Or that you say, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, the bar is going up. You cannot look on a woman to lust after her. And we need to, guys, we need to be like Job who said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust on a woman. How many, how many of us can, can do this? How many of us guys can do it? I can't. But I tell you what, Christ in me can. Yeah. And when I keep in that position of this unity with Christ, he enables and empowers me uh, to, by living his life through me, my body is his temple and he is living in his body, my, my body. We have a problem with identity. Uh, the, uh, 
There's the I. Who am I? And apart from Christ, I am what? I'm I'm dangerous. I'm dangerous. I'm evil. Apart from Christ, when push comes to shove, my real self will emerge. I read a book 30 years ago called The Shantung Compound. It was a story of the Japanese occupation of China in the Second World War. They had rounded up a lot of uh, Europeans, American missionaries, uh, other people, and had put them in a concentration camp where the conditions were unbelievably harsh. So much so, in their little bunk, narrow bunks, had metal feet, uh, the people would, would take a pencil and draw around the foot of their bunk. The, 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 and uh, so if somebody was fudging a half inch, pushing over into your territory, you would know it. Because that's what unbelievable things uh, took place when people were under pressure. Who they really were came out. And this is true of all of us. We can't sit back and say, I'm, I'm better than that. You're not. Apart from Christ, we are dangerous. However, with Christ living in us, the possibility of righteousness is everywhere. The possibility, now who am I? I'm no longer this dangerous person, but I am now a person whose want to has been changed. A new spirit is in me. Uh, we read in, in uh, Jeremiah uh, and Isaiah where he says, uh, I'm going to, there's coming a time when I will give you a new heart. I will take the heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh. And when that surgery takes place by God the Holy Spirit, the potential for righteousness is there. Because it's not us doing it. I do know that there's, this is hard, but when we become believers, there is a synthesis that takes place. uh, And it's kind of like fusion. That's a Ford now, but it used to be a cup of coffee. (laughs) Now, fusion is when the water and the coffee become inseparable. There's still the water, there's still the coffee, coffee, but they are now bound together. And I want you to know God has made this fusion with us, with himself, by the Holy Spirit, so that our, our basic inclinations, which made us dangerous, tend to be selfish, looking out for our own ends. That means my want-tos were changed. I, I love righteousness now. Because I have the righteous one living in me. And I want him, and my, my request is always that, God, I give my, the members of my body to you as a living sacrifice. I give the members of my body to you as instruments of righteousness. I will not be a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. I, I don't, every morning I pray, And all day long sometimes. It's called walking in the Spirit, abiding in the Spirit. 
And I just say, God, it's up to you. And I'm inviting you now to give me your mind, your emotions, uh, your responses. There are times when Jesus got angry. You knew that, didn't you? But his anger was always focused on those people who were closing the door of opportunity of the people. This is what the temple thing was about, the, the, the whip. They had set up a system to keep the people from the house of prayer. And in order to go in, they had to buy at exorbitant prices a sacrifice. I mean, this was filling up the temple coffers and making cynics of everybody who went in. And Jesus was outraged. He came into that and he threw over the money tables and he says, this was to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Romans 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is there now, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the more good news, the ultimate good news is that I know you can't do this. The Hebrews didn't find out. The Islamists haven't found out. But Jesus knew that we could not keep the law. And so he says, I've done something for you and I have placed my life in you. Now what you have to do, according to Romans 7, is take this position. I reckon myself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Do you know what the word reckon is? It's a banking statement. You add the numbers up and at the bottom... He says, I want you, okay, we've gone through this now, who you are, who God is, and why you can't make it on your own. Add it up, and here's what it comes out. Now, your part is to believe. Your part is to believe that that old Adam nature is truly dead, and his, his ability to influence is only to the degree that the enemy tries to resurrect him and puff up his ego, so that he will do on his own what only God can do in us. How many of you know we can do good-looking things, but with a wrong heart? Yeah, we can go to church. We can even read our Bibles. And sometimes people read their Bibles looking for something that will affirm what they, what they want to believe. We can do good-looking things, but they don't necessarily come from God. If our pride and ego is involved, it's not God. You want to know what the, the, where humility comes from? Humility is agreeing with God about his estimation of me. When we live from this posture, there is, it is humbling. There's no, more, no longer a wrestling match between my ego and pride and the ego and pride of other people. Uh, and it's out of this that the life of Christ moves, the glow of the gospel shines out, and the words we say about the cross and the tomb and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit, 
they're now believable. And before that, they're not really believable. Dear friends, I, I, I urge you, I call upon you to believe God's word about your old Adam nature. It is dead. And it has no more dominion over you unless you believe the lie and begin to move into that self-actualization that is held up as the principal value. Paul says, it's no longer I that do it, but it's Christ who lives in me. Do you see now why Paul was obsessive about the gospel? He was, uh, he had an obsession for grace. When he was out there in the desert for three years, uh, when God was, uh, Jesus Christ was teaching him everything in the Old Testament that he knew well, suddenly was seen in a different light. And it became painfully clear the conviction of the Holy Spirit that the only answer, Paul, is a new center and abiding in that person. The vine, in the, the branch in the vine. Holiness is only possible through grace. Holiness is God in us living out his divine life. If you're dealing with all kinds of guilt and fear and shame, and let me tell you what, that, what the sin is. The sin is unbelief. We simply have not accepted as true what God says is true. And we've chosen to act out of our new religious person. Reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. God says that's the truth. Uh, and you can spend 30 years fumbling around trying to do it some other way. But you're going to come back to this. And I find a lot of people, rather than coming back to this, learn to strut and posture and work hard at looking holy. When inside there's all kinds of things raging that are unholy and they know it. Can you imagine a more miserable person? Let's bow in prayer, can we? Father God, uh, we stand before you in all of your holiness and perfection. And when, God, you have touched our lives and we have been put inside your Son, and our not only our past sin was dealt with, but our future hope of righteousness was embedded in us, by the presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you would free us from this life of exhausting struggle to, to do it right and try harder. Help us to focus on one thing, and that is to walk in intimacy with you, to stay tuned to your voice, and to 
yield completely, God, to your activity within our bodies that uh, manifests your beautiful life. Father, I think about the problem with evangelism. Uh, The United States of America, it seems to me, Father, is not wanting for Bible information. Not wanting for, for churches. It is really wanting, God, for a, a, a body of people, a church that would live from Christ. God, we want you to be glorified in us. And Father, I submit this teaching to you. I ask by your spirit that you would take it and apply it individually as is appropriate. And I ask, Father God, that uh, this assembly of people at Christian Center would become famous for the presence of God. Uh, God, we long for this, and yet we fight you on it. So here we are, God. We yield up the members of our body to you as instruments of righteousness. Live your life through us. And then, Father, release us from our fear of man. Give us the ability to be kind to people, to serve them, to affirm them, uh, and to share with them in all humility the good news that truly liberates and ministers life. Father, I ask for your continued work in our hearts. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in us as it is in heaven. Amen. I had one other thing, well, several things, but I, the, the thing that started this for me was thinking about all those churches that Paul started. He'd be there for two weeks in some cases. And when he left, there were leaders and the church grew and flourished. My question is, what did Paul tell those people? I believe he told them what I'm telling you because this is the thing that is unique in Christianity. This is the thing that makes us more than another religion trying to produce nice people. And I believe these churches grew because they 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 got it straight from the beginning. Now, there were problems. Paul went back. He wrote letters and a lot of other things. But this was an amazing uh, activity that took place in an extremely hostile environment. And I'm praying that that kind of thing would happen here and all over this valley. Uh, God hasn't changed. He still is the God of here and now. His problem is us. Okay? Thank you. God bless you.